Welcome to The Gathering Place with Blessed Is She. I'm Jenna Gizar. And I'm Beth Davis. Pull up a chair and grab a drink. Or you could just keep doing what you're doing. Pull up a chair in your heart. (laughs) Come chat with us about Jesus, prayer, community, and life. So let's get started. Hi, Beth. Hey, Jenna. How are you doing? Very happy to be with you, Jenna. I'm very happy to have the beautiful Jenny Eubing here with us today. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Beth. Hi, friend. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun to be with you. Jenny, I wish we were outside in the Arizona desert together again. I wish for that too. Those were the days. In general, I just wish to be with you, Jenny. Well, I'm so happy that I can see your faces while I talk to you. Before we just dive right in, would you introduce yourself? My name is Jenny Eubing, and I live in Denver. got five crazy kids. I have a blog called Mama Needs Coffee, and I have been writing for Blessed Is She from, like, a long time. I mean, almost the beginning, not quite the beginning, but a while. And then I finally met all of you guys just this year for the first time. You have my favorite blog title of all time. Thank you. I thought about changing it a couple years ago because I was like, this is embarrassing, but you can't change it. That would be like Google changing. I mean, not <laughs> quite on. You know what I <laughs> I think it perfectly captures you. It's like snarky, quick. I like it. Jenny, I hear you have a birthday coming up. I don't know if it's just like crossing over the hump of my mid thirties because I'm about to turn 36 in like two days. But this year I feel like it's been so getting comfortable with myself and suddenly being able to be like a much better friend who's not constantly assessing like, how do I look compared to her? That mom's really dressed up in Carla and she probably thinks this, like all of that negative self-talk has like really died down. Obviously that has good, personal mental health benefits, but I've been really surprised by like the relationship space that's opened up when you're not constantly like self-criticizing or even like being so self-referential. I don't think I realized how self-centered it was to be so negative about Mm. myself because you're still thinking about yourself all the time. I just feel like this year, 35 has been like such a transformative personal growth year. Yeah. I've like learned a lot of stuff about being me and there's something about like your mid thirties. You stop pretending that you're comfortable and I think you have to either embrace how uncomfortable you are or decide I actually am fine. I'm pretty comfortable with this. But you know what? Can I tell you something? I was looking through my pictures on my phone, which I love to do pastime of mine. And I saw this picture of myself and I thought, I like that person. And I, I mean, I'm typically a person who's like really critical of photos. I mean, most days I'm still probably very critical. So it was, a, it was a moment of grace that I could even look at that photo and think that. But so what I'm trying to say, Jenny, is yeah, I think I could lean into that a little bit and maybe claim it as a, a lesson of being 35. Right. Okay. So I felt like my 20s were very like grasping when am I going to get the right job? When am I going to land the man? When are we going to get married? When is he going to propose? When are we going to get like, it was all about like next, next, next. The grasping season feels like it's like totally in the rear view mirror. So I like appreciate this new feeling of not like grasping. This is where we're at. This is reality and it's fine. 
I, I started going to therapy and I've been to therapy so many times. This time I went with the intention of, oh my gosh, I have a little daughter, a cute, chunky little preschooler. And I was starting to have some of the same like negative thoughts about her body that I've always had about my body. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I think it was the first time I've ever been motivated to go to therapy for somebody else's benefit primarily. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm so depressed. I need someone to fix me or this problem. I was like, oh, I have to get this thing removed from my brain before it hurts somebody else. Wow. That plus like just really feeling like the Lord was like doing a lot of like healing kind of prayer in our relationship at the same time. Mental and spiritual healing was kind of taking place. I felt that over this whole past year. And I was expecting, oh, hopefully this will make me a better mom and I'll stop setting this bad example for my kids. But I wasn't expecting it to like actually make me feel happier and more content. You know, the church talks about this, that there's a communal aspect to private sin. So even Mm -hmm. something like insecurity, negative self-talk, self-criticism, those things bleed out and affect other relationships. You're talking about it with your children, but it's true in relationships with other women. I'm hard on the people that I love the most even. And really it's because I'm hard on myself. So we think it's this personal thing. It's just bad self-esteem, but it has the potential to affect every significant relationship. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And it's easy to kind of gloss over that Jesus says, like, love one another as you love yourself. I don't feel like I've ever heard a homily specifically preaching, you have to practice seeing yourself through God's eyes. Because to the extent that you love and accept yourself and receive your life as a gift from him, like, that's how you can love other people. It all makes more sense now that he would tie those commandments together. Wow. Probably the most compelling definition of humility that I've heard is not thinking poorly of yourself, but not thinking of yourself at all. I like what you're saying, that true love of God is self-love and acceptance, which makes us available Mm -hmm. to love other people, as opposed to, oh, I've got to forget about myself. I've got to forget about myself. It's like, no, I, I love and accept myself. I see my inherent dignity, my worth as a child of God, and that makes me more capable And I think self-forgetfulness comes eventually, but I I wonder if self-love and acceptance comes first. I can make a decision out of my will. I'm still objectively 40 pounds overweight from my last baby. And that's reality. And I don't have to follow that equation out to, and therefore I'm ugly and I hate myself. And I should spend a lot of mental energy, like criticizing what I'm wearing and what fits and doesn't fit yet. Can we talk about the leap that we take from I'm 40 pounds overweight to I hate myself, I'm ugly? It's it's so simple. I think it can almost become automatic. Oh, yeah. Well, it's totally automatic. Your brain, the neuroplasticity that we're blessed with can really work against us because I think God has given us a gift to automate a lot of our thoughts and processes. So we're not like driving to the office in the morning trying to remember how to get there. Yeah. But like you can choose, you know, what roads you're going to go down and what grooves you're going to really dig into. I don't feel like I look the best that I could look, but I don't need 
to preoccupy myself with like this recriminating litany of all of the shortcomings. I can just sit in the knowledge of I'm still happy. Like I think like women are so drawn to what is beautiful because that's how God speaks to our nature. We're very attuned to beauty. And I think the enemy really turns that back against us and says what's natural and beautiful in a woman's soul, which is like to crave beauty and to seek it out can be weaponized because, okay, well let's look at all the ways that you're falling short of the ideal and who cares where the ideal is coming from? Who cares who set the standard? The only thing he's concerned about is keeping you fretting about not meeting the standard. So I think it's like very normal for women to want to look beautiful and present themselves as another avenue of beauty and creation. Jenny, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I'm curious what the difference is for you, especially in terms of female friendships and your family life, how those relationships feel differently now that you have this level of self-acceptance or self-love, what does that look like for you? It kind of looks like you were streaming a bunch of devices on the same Wi-Fi. The one that was sucking up the most bandwidth is hung up now. This huge chunk of data is no longer streaming. And suddenly I have all of this open space where I can like see a friend and be like not thinking, oh my gosh, like why did she lose weight so fast? I know she's had for babies, why don't I look like that yet? Or all of those thoughts are gone. It feels miraculous. But to Mm -hmm. now like see someone and encounter them and be like, I wonder how her day is. Or, oh, I should ask about this thing I remember that she was dealing with. And for my kids, I don't know, as a mom, you kind of overly identify with your kids sometimes from even as little babies, you want them to look so cute. So other people give you feedback about how cute they are. And it's super refreshing to be more hold back to see their autonomy and their like otherness. This is not a little extension of my will who has like half of my genes. This is this kid and she's going to react this way in a situation. And that actually doesn't have a lot to do with me or how I've been parenting her. There's more space. It's so funny when you were saying that and using that amazing analogy, that is all sin. That is what sin does is it sucks us And it's something you can't let go of. It's a tape continuously replaying in your head over and over again. It's something you constantly fall into. And it's amazing when I think of my habitual sins and things that I struggle with, I can remember the moments of freedom where that tape didn't play anymore. And it's literally just as you described it, that data plan was shut off. And I now have all of this freedom and space and the ability to love people and the ability to even love myself because that plan's cut off. Yeah. And it kind of even gives you compassion for when you didn't have the freedom. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is what it feels like to not have all of that going in the background. No wonder I couldn't pull myself out of it. And What you're saying about bandwidth, again, excellent analogy. I think it could work for so many things, not just self-criticism, like automatic negative thinking. I think it's true of worry, obsessing Mm -hmm. over the past, worrying about the future, anxiety, wondering what people think about you, wondering how that conversation went and what they think of that, worrying about how that conversation is going to go and how they might react. All of those things are taking us out 
of the present where God is with us and trying to steal our peace and our joy. Yeah. And I do want to emphasize, because I can imagine hearing this when I was in a different place and being like, oh, so great. I'm glad you love yourself now. Awesome. You could afford to go to therapy. Like, I don't know why God chose this year to like reveal these things. And I wish I could put my finger on it and say, it was definitively going on this antidepressant. My life is perfect now. Mm. It was this therapist. It was praying with this priest and doing these deliverance prayers. It was eating no gluten. I don't know. But ultimately it was a gift. God reached in and was like, tap, tap, tap. You're doing this wrong. I remember having this very, very clear insight after communion at mass one Sunday where God never talks to me because my kids are like rubbing their noses all over my pants. Usually it was pretty recently postpartum. I usually had like 20 or 30 minutes in the bathroom where I would cry while I was stuffing myself into a dress. I would notice on Sundays it would really spike to like almost this frenzy of self-hatred while I was getting ready for mass. And I would be the, just like, you are, this, I'm disgusting. I'm da, da, da. All these children, this is what the thanks I get for being, you know, like it would just get into a really nasty place. And then I would go to mass in that state of mind and heart and just be like, and now my kids are flopping all over the place. And I asked the Lord to show me how he saw me because I felt like I had no clear vision for who I really was or what I really looked like. And I knew like, this is not of God for me to be like in this frenzy of self-hatred and judgment. And he was like, so clearly and profoundly, like, I see the sacrifice of your body. And he wasn't like, you're beautiful. He literally like showed me an image of him on the cross, battered, torn, bleeding, objectively not great looking. And he was like, you are a sacrifice. This is what love looks like. This is how I love you. It felt almost like he probably did some major healing in my brain because that kind of love doesn't make sense and you can't self-talk your way into a good place where you see brokenness and sacrifice and suffering and say, oh, it's so beautiful. But he was able to show that to me. And I feel like that was kind of the turning point. And that like became my point of reference for like being more accepting, I guess, of my body. And I think for other people, there might be other things they focus on, like not their physical appearance, but maybe like their intelligence or their career, or I don't know whether or not they have a lot of friends. I kind of like that we're talking about body image stuff because I think we talk about general whatever. Yes. But body stuff is very real and very painful and it goes way back. I think it's hard to overcome. And I love that you said that it wasn't, there wasn't one quick fix. There isn't a clear cut answer to particularly body acceptance that it's really attacking it from every angle with the Lord and trying things on until (laughs) pun intended, trying things on, get it? Oh, I didn't didn't get it, but now I do. (laughs) (laughs) Probably sometime around the same time that I had this profound image after communion, I had this sudden new awareness that that negative tape that was playing, all of my self-hatred and like body image stuff was not an intrinsic part of my personality. I felt like for a second, God pulled the veil back and was like, this is how the enemy talks to you. And this is how he's always talked to you. And even though it's really familiar and you've done it your whole life, I, I don't know. I had this insight like, oh, my gosh, I'm cooperating with this, but it's not my voice. 
And it was like super freeing to step out of that identity of like, I'm a bulimic. I'm a person who had an eating disorder for 10 years. I'm a girl who's always struggled with her body image to like put some distance between that and be like, this is an entry point where Satan always attacks me and always has. And when I start hearing those things again, I can now objectively say, that's not my voice. That's something I used to really wrestle with and not know how to overcome it. But now I can wrestle with it intentionally saying, no, that's not part of my identity. Like I don't claim that. It reminds me, Jenny, of, um, that verse in second Corinthians that talks about tearing down strongholds because this is what happens is we make Mm. early agreements with the enemy Mm -hmm. And the voice becomes so familiar, the lies, the suggestions become so familiar that that's now a place that the enemy encamps. So he gets down, he gains ground, he camps out, he gets down in the foxhole, he fires from that place. And again and again, he's able to Mm -hmm. continue to hold us captive in that area because we've given him that ground. And now we think that is our voice. Yeah. I think if you hear something often enough and for a long enough time, you stop asking, where is this coming from? You just accept it because it's always been there. And I actually, the kind of therapy that I did was called EMDR. And it's like a specific kind of therapy that was developed to like help people with PTSD for like trauma survivors. And I didn't like have a trauma, but the therapist I was working with was like, you know, this has really helped some people who struggle with anxiety. But we found this early experience, I remembered this kid on the playground in third grade calling me this name and how it felt. And it was really crazy to think that you could trace things back to like, yeah, there was an original wound and it might not have looked like anything, but it got infected over time. And I'm so grateful for how generous you are with your story. When we got to know each other just recently, you were that generous with me and shared with me the story of your reversion, which is miraculous and incredible and inspiring. And I wonder if you would share that. I was raised Catholic. I would have considered myself very Catholic because I wasn't having sex with my boyfriend. So that was very Catholic. But I went to public school and I mean, I still like experimented a little bit with alcohol in high school, but I mean, still very Catholic. I didn't drive while I was drinking, so very Catholic. I went to school. I went to a big party school and my parents were like, you may not go to college here, but I was like, you're not paying for it. I'm going to go wherever I want. So I went and I really just went because my boyfriend was going there. And so through the course of college, I went from, I'm super Catholic. I'm going to walk up to the Newman center and go to mass once a week to like, I'm living with a bunch of people who sell drugs and partying like every night. And I wasn't doing most of the drugs and I wasn't selling them. And I had like such a blind spot because it was so much crazier the way that people around me were living that I still felt like, I mean, I'm doing a pretty good job. Christmas break, my senior year of college, my little sister who had just started college as a freshman came home and she had gone to this crazy little podunk hole in the wall, super Catholic college called Steubenville. So she came back home and was like, oh, Jesus loves you. Like, he has a different plan for your life. And I was like, shut up. I think I probably, like, spoke to her in a voice that sounded like from the exorcist. And I was like, you don't know reality. Like, I remember having this screaming fight in our bathroom at our parents' house. And I was like, you'll see when you get out in the real world what it's really like. And you'll have to have a job. And nobody lives like that. Anyway, it was a very productive conversation. 
And she ended up challenging me to go a month without drinking and just like see what happens. And I was like, of course I can go a month without drinking. Like what, you know? So I did it after she went back to school and um, it was like February at that point after the month was up. Nobody wanted to hang out if you weren't going to go to the bars. So I had no friends. I mean, I had a job. I was still going to class. I felt like my life had come completely unmoored. Like I had no anchor in my life. I ordered some Scott Hahn cassette tapes off the internet from a website that my mom had often referenced growing up. And I have this like very vivid memory of being locked in my room in the house that I lived in with a bunch of like mixed sex roommates listening to a Scott Hahn tape in the middle of the night because they were like after partying in the kitchen downstairs. And it was around this time like Lent started. I decided to keep going with the no drinking thing. And that year at the end of Lent, on the night before Divine Mercy Sunday, JP2 died. And I had like been doing this no drinking thing for a couple months now. My life was still totally without meaning. I was really depressed because I had no alcohol to medicate it with. I realized I had no real friends. The day that he died, I sat down on the couch and turned the TV on. Every channel was just news coverage from Rome. I knew who the Pope was. I knew he was like the super priest of the church. Like I didn't, that was like the extent of my understanding. I had like no connection. I had never read anything he had written. And I had like a hysterical breakdown. Like I spent hours watching the news coverage, crying. I finally was like, I have to leave my house. I don't know what's happening to me. So I walked downtown to the church where I would sometimes go on Sundays. And even though it was a Friday or something in the middle of the day, the church was open and there was this picture of him with candles, kind of somebody had set up like a little memorial in front of the altar. And I like had to go up to it. I just had to. And I fell on my knees and I was still crying. And I just kind of poured my heart out. And it was really weird. There was one other person in the church and it was a reporter for the local newspaper. And he took a picture of me. And I have that picture still of like fat, recently not still drunk Jenny kneeling in front of this JP2 picture, sobbing and wearing reefs and like disgusting college clothes. (laughs) But anyway, that week I withdrew from classes. I didn't tell any of my friends. I applied to school at Steubenville. I had no theology, so I'd have to basically redo my whole senior year so I could get all of the right credits. And then I kept working at the bar I was working at until July. And then I was like, oh, by the way, guys, I'm moving to Ohio next month. And I think I want to become super Catholic. And that was pretty much the beginning of the next chapter. But you can see now it wasn't like an instantaneous conversion because there was all this buildup. Like my sister planted and watered that seed. And now I've got all these kids and I don't black out anymore. (laughs) And and JP2 has just been like such a big intercessor for our family. We actually got to go to Rome for his beatification. Mm -hmm. And then we got to go again for his canonization. And I just feel like I'm going to high five him in heaven if I ever get there and just be like, Bro, you didn't know me, but you knew me, and there was something you wanted for me. So that's kind of the not much of an elevator version. Jenny, I totally credit you being on the team for John Paul II's intercession. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Yeah. I really think he has his eye on Blessed Is She because he has his eye on you. Yeah. So she told me that story in the pool in what month was that? September. September. And I was telling her, I have no devotion to John Paul II. Yes. But he, he definitely wants this retreat in D.C. to happen. And then the retreat in D.C. was insane. The retreat in D.C. was anointed. And I knew there was like this healing component of the retreat, which just makes perfect sense when you 
look at the, mm. the life of John Paul II and his love for women. But on the last day, when we had gone back to just finish everything up at the shrine, so there's this beautiful uh, Luminous Mysteries chapel. The artwork are all these beautiful mosaics of the Luminous Mysteries given to us by John Paul II. And in the altar is a blood relic of John Paul II. And so we each had a little bit of time in a moment, and I was kneeling there praying and just thanking him for the gift of the retreat. I was so grateful and in awe that he wanted this retreat here and had so graced it by his prayers, you know? And I had this overwhelming sense that he is already a fierce champion and intercessor for Blessed Is She. There was this whole, like a flood of spiritual understanding, a gift of understanding that, you know, we're so in line with his heart, you know, for the new evangelization, for women, And it just made perfect sense. And I really think, Jenny, I think a big part of that is you and your story. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I'm still so moved by it. You're welcome. I am too. It's like good to remember. Also, I'm just so impressed with your sister. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, she had some cojones. Jenny, thank you. For being here and for sharing so much of your story and your growth with us. It's a beautiful testament. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you for having me. It was great to see both of your faces. Jenny, would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We give you praise for the ways that you are guiding us closer and closer to the heart of the Father. We ask that you would continue to reveal to us who Jesus is and also who we are, and that you would instill in our hearts an understanding of our goodness and our beauty and our worth in him alone. We pray, especially through the intercession of John Paul II, for all of the women who are a part of and who will be a part of Blessed Is She, that their hearts would also be more and more deeply converted to Jesus. And in his words, we implore you for the strength to be not afraid. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. You guys are so cute. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Thanks so much for gathering with us here on the Blessed Is She podcast. Send over all your questions using the Anchor app. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us at blessedishe.net slash community and join us on all your favorite social media platforms. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I love Twitter. Until next time.